Hi, I'm Carmen LaBerge. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Mornings with Carmen LaBerge. Getting ready to represent Christ to your world today. This is Mornings with Carmen LaBerge on Faith Radio. Well, good morning on this Tuesday, October the 5th. We have a lot of wonderful conversations planned this morning. We're going to lead off with Dr. Mark Caleb Smith from Cedarville University, who's actually in Washington, D.C. So we're going to talk with him about some headlines of the day related to what's going on, not only inside the Beltway, um, but also the future of constitutional conservatism. Um, Let me lead off with this headline related to the Supreme Court, which returned to in-person oral arguments yesterday. That's the first time that's happened since the COVID-19 pandemic began. Um, It is what I would describe uh, along with others. I mean, I'm not the only person saying this. This is quite a blockbuster docket that the Supreme Court has before it. By the end of next June, by the end of next June, and let's just for context, think about where we're going to be uh, by the end of next June. That will be the June prior to um, what are called the midterm elections. And there's already lots of conversations about the midterm elections in terms of the desires, particularly of Republicans, to retake uh, the House of Representatives um, and maybe even make some uh, some progress to, to reflip the Senate. So there you go. There's things going on in the midterms that uh, have people's attention. The the Supreme Court uh, has people's attention for the cases that it has chosen to take, in addition to the news that it makes um, it, on what's called its shadow docket. And so we'll talk more about that um, as the Supreme Court season unfolds as well. But by the end of next June, the court will have handed down major decisions on abortion, potentially the reversal of Roe v. Wade, certainly uh, revisiting the issue of whether or not the standard of life is viability or something else. They're going to uh, make a ruling related to handguns. Uh, So this is a Second Amendment case. At issue is what it means to bear arms beyond having a gun uh, in your own home for self-defense. There is a death penalty case. There is a case related to the use of taxpayer funds Um, For religious schools, this is a religious liberty case. It's also, I think, a case about educational choice. There is a case uh, related to the redrawing of congressional districts, challenges to the Biden administration's nationwide vaccine mandate, uh, the continuation of the Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals, that's DACA. That is a, a, an immigration-related case. There's a case uh, related to race out of Harvard and Harvard's use of racial affirmative action. There's some cases that um, probably right now flying under the radar, but I suspect as things unfold and people are paying closer and closer attention and digging deeper and deeper into the Supreme Court docket, there's there's a sleeper case, um, or I ought to call it a sleeper case, uh, that, that seems, you know, like really boring on the face of it because it's about how much uh, the ability of um, agencies of the government to interpret statutes that are passed by Congress and whether or not some of those agencies lack uh, the the ability to interpret the law in such a way that uh, that they should then be making the rules that govern all of us uh, 
at the at sort of the micro level. Um, I actually think that's a really interesting case because it has the potential to strip many of those um, rules and regulations that are made by agencies of the government when, in fact, they are not uh, really in a position to interpret what those statutes mean. So anyway, I think that's going to be an interesting case to watch as well. All right. In the midst of this is all happening in the midst of a culture that sees judges as subject to judgment. I mean, you know, at the end of the day, we have some serious authority issues and are currently living in a culture where everyone thinks that, you know, they're the best judge of what should happen. And so uh, Mark Caleb Smith is up next. We are going to talk about, well, we're going to get a quick update on the infrastructure bill or bills um, and and everything else that's going on in Washington, D.C. That's up next here on Mornings with Carmen. Joining us now, Mark Caleb Smith from Cedarville University. Good morning, sir. Good morning, Carmen. How are you doing? I am. I am quite well. I am quite well. All right. For those of us uh, who weren't paying attention over the weekend, where are we now on the infrastructure bill or bills? Uh, we are in the middle of intense negotiations. Still, uh, I don't think we're any closer to having actual bills passed necessarily. Uh, both parties are digging in to some extent. And I think what we're really looking at, I think, is a serious division within the Democratic Party uh, between progressives and others over how much the party is willing to push for spending. Um, And until that kind of division between people uh, like Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez or Joe Manchin or Kristen Sinema, until those folks come to some kind of understanding of what they're willing to support, uh, this thing looks like it's just stalled. And I think something will get done. It's just difficult to know when, and it's difficult to know how big it's going to be. All right. So that was that's one that I think we just we just keep watching um, because right. we can't. I mean, that's hard for us to talk about. All right. Let's talk about the future of constitutional conservatism, which is something a word I have to say slowly, or it gets lost in my mouth. What um, what is the conversation here that you want to have this morning? Well, I think there's a lot of, uh, I think like a lot of conservatism, if you want to use that term broadly, there's a lot right now up for debate. Mm -hmm. Um, Throughout most of my lifetime, what it meant to be a conservative in America was a fairly well known, you know, it was usually about conserving the founding principles, upholding the Constitution, uh, looking for limited government, uh, interpreting the Constitution narrowly to restrict that government. Um, this sort of just kind of garden variety conservatism. Well, I think in the last five to 10 years, we've seen a lot of arguments about what conservatism really is. Um, there are those who kind of look at our founding who and say, you know what, that's really part of our problem. Uh, even people who are kind of dispositionally conservative, maybe very religious people uh, who want to see the country go in a slightly different direction when it comes to morality, for example, Uh, They look at the founding and say, you know, there's way too much individualism there, way too much, uh, way too much focus on rights, let's say, as opposed to focus on the public good. And so they they would like to see conservatism go in a different direction. And so right now, I think we're looking at a real struggle 
uh, within the conservative movement as to what the direction is going to look at look like in the future. Let me give you one example to sort of highlight the tension here. Uh, let's think of an issue like pornography from a legal perspective. Uh, I think most people would argue that pornography is probably bad for the country, bad for society. But when we think of it, it is also included to some degree under freedom of speech. So should conservatism focus on protecting pornography as a matter of free speech? <clears throat> or should it allow for the limitation of pornography in order to serve the public good? Those two mm. things are difficult to reconcile. And conservatives are coming down on kind of different sides of that issue. Um, and it's going to be really interesting to watch where it moves forward. There's a whole lot more going on here, of course. But uh, that's just sort of probably a good place to start. Okay, no, that's a really good place to start. And I think that that's a that's a good subject um, to focus on. We can all agree that pornography is bad for individuals. It's bad for marriages. It's bad for kids. It's bad for, as you said, society in general, right. um, from a Christian worldview, certainly. But when we use the term conservative, or we use the idea of conservatism, in the United States of America, we're not necessarily talking about people who are Christian. Um, right. And so I think there's a conversation about who are the current, quote unquote, conservatives. And based on who those people are, then the definition, the current definition of what it means to be conservative is, sort of comes into focus or into frame. And so those are not necessarily people of religious conviction. Some of right. them are interested in conserving things about America or the things they think are true about America or thought were true about America that may or may not align with what I would understand to be a Christian worldview and vice versa. Like, it, it's it's a complicated conversation. It's a little bit like when someone describes himself as an evangelical, and I have to stop and say, right. what do you mean by that? Yeah, I mean, right now, I think there are kind of two warring groups, if you want to call it that, uh, not to get too dramatic about it, but they're the libertarians who sort of really just want maximum freedom, and they're going to focus on protecting rights more than anything else. Um, and, you know, they fit within conservatism pretty well when it comes to things like government and spending and the welfare state. Uh, but then when we think about, the, as you said, sort of the con Christian conservatives, you know, they want a different kind of thing to conserve. They have a different view of society and what it should look like, and maybe it shouldn't be about maximum freedom, but about promoting a virtuous country, for example. And those, again, those things don't always work together hand in hand. I mean, this is some of the tension that we've seen for a long time, you know, and critics who might be listening right now might say, well, yeah, you know, you're kind of papering over a lot of arguments over the last 50 years. And that's true, but those two groups kind of work together for a long time under the conservative umbrella. But now it just looks like it's harder and harder for them to come to agreement um, over what the future should look like. All right. We're going to continue our conversation in just a moment with Dr. Mark Caleb Smith from Cedarville University. Uh, and we're going to turn our attention to the abortion debate on Capitol Hill. That's up next here on Mornings with Carmen. He was a famous trumpet man from all Chicago way. He had a boogie style that no one else could play. He was a top man at his craft. All right, continuing our conversation with Dr. Mark Caleb Smith from Cedarville University. Um, what is the abortion debate currently underway on Capitol Hill, recognizing that we also have uh, conversations taking place um, 
surrounding the the subject of abortion at the state level across the country um and and now soon to be uptaken uh again by the Supreme Court. But what's the Capitol Hill debate that we're looking at today? So I I really have to point out, you know, I'm in Washington DC right now. Uh Cedarville has a Washington DC semester and I'm doing a 3-week stint here as a faculty member. And one of my daughters came with me, and uh, yesterday we had a little bit of free time. And so we walked around the area, and uh, we walked past the Supreme Court, and there was a pretty significant demonstration there over abortion. Um, And then we walked from there to Capitol Hill, and there were also people there uh, milling about discussing abortion as well. Uh, Now, we didn't go to the White House yesterday. We didn't walk past that, so I don't know what's going on there. Uh, but it certainly seems like abortion is being discussed more uh, than it has been in quite some time. As you said, at the federal level, at the state level, at the local level, we're talking about it in the context of courts and what the Supreme Court might do, as you mentioned earlier, and even in Congress and what Congress is trying to do. Uh, I mean, recently in the House, they passed a legislation that basically they tried to take Roe versus Wade and turn it into a, a law as opposed to just a court decision. Um, There's a good bit of testimony surrounding that from members of Congress, women, female members of Congress, some of them testifying about their own abortions that they had had, Uh, other members of Congress testifying about the fact that they were not aborted and that they had been born in difficult circumstances and their mothers decided to keep them. And of course, they were appreciative of that. And so it's it's certainly on the uh, front burner in a way. You know, as a political scientist, I've often talked to people about abortion and where we stand and it's almost it seemed like a back burner issue for quite some time. I mean, conservative Christian conservatives have been have cared about it for a long time, but it was it's rarely been on the front of the agenda. That's changed now. You know, I think it's on the front of the agenda at the moment. Uh, the Supreme Court changing toward a fairly significant conservative majority, I think, has pushed this discussion into the middle of the table. Um, and it's going to be really interesting to watch the next couple of years unfold because I think we will see some movement. I don't know if it's going to be as dramatic as people think that it will be, uh, but I think you are going to see some changes take place. So a few thoughts um, that I just think it's it's always good for us to be mindful that there are a lot of people, no matter where we are, no matter what room we're in, no matter what group we are in, there are a lot of people for whom abortion is a real experience. Um, it, it is a real thing that happened. It is a real thing they participated in. Um, it's a real, it's a reality in their family. And so every time we talk about this, I want us, uh, Mark, this is less to you than uh, than to than to everyone else um, listening right now. Um, I'm just aware that if it's a not a part of your personal experience, it is easy to act like it's not a part of any Christian's experience. And that's simply not true. And so I think every time we have this conversation, we we absolutely need to do so, recognizing we're having it in the presence of the Lord and we're having it in the presence of one another. And this is a lived reality for a lot of people um, who have deep grief and regret and, um, and, and live with the trauma of having had an abortion or having had an abortion in their family. And so um, let's be mindful of that uh, as we talk about this and as we address this. And I say that, Mark, only because... I had an experience with a listener last week who used language in relationship to abortion that just made me recognize that 
we're not all there yet in terms of understanding who who's in this conversation today. And there are Christian women in this conversation today. And I just want to speak directly to the hearts of those who would refer to abortion in um, in very graphic terms. I understand that it is the taking of another human life. I also understand that the language we use in relationship to it is important. So, um, so that little piece being said, I think that each and every one of us needs to be prepared to have this conversation. We need to be able to articulate um, what it means for us to be pro-life when we actually believe that life begins. We need to be able to articulate that from a Christian worldview. Um, and then we also need to uh, recognize that I need to be pro-life from, for me, my, you know, the way I say it, I am pro-life from conception to natural death. Um, I need to understand what that means and what that means in relationship to people who then are going to have children that they cannot financially uh, care for. And so all of those conversations, or emotionally care for, spiritually care for, the list is long. So I just think that all of those conversations are wound up in this. Yeah, and I agree. And I think we often miss the reality that even though we're talking about a grave moral issue, uh, we have to do it in such a way that people ideally see Christ through us and through that conversation. And so you always have to walk that line, I think, between taking a very firm moral position on the one hand, but trying to show love and understanding to people uh, who've been through circumstances that we often can't imagine. Um, And somehow you have to try to reconcile those things, even in the same conversation. And that's really difficult, very difficult to do. Um, But it's just easy to kind of knee jerk toward well, this is what I believe, and I know I'm right about it, or toward just simply loving the person and affirming their decision. And you have to sometimes get in between those positions and work in both directions. Um, but And I think it's really tough to do, but I think your words of encouragement are well-spoken. Well, thanks. Um, I think that it, it, the immigration conversation is similar, right? right. So, yep. um, right, it's a moral, it is a moral issue. It is an, it is an issue of national concern. Um are there safety concerns? Absolutely. Are we still talking about people who are precious and made in the image of God? Yes, we are. And balancing all of that and having the conversation in a way that is honest and compassionate um, and gets us to a place where, as a country, we can you know, peaceably live, not just with one another, but you know, sort of in the neighborhood of nations, uh, is important as well. And all of these are complex issues, and discerning the mind of Christ related to each and every one, is challenging, uh, particularly in a post-Christian, very pluralistic culture. Yeah, no doubt about it. And I, I, and I think, as you said earlier, uh, having a well-formed biblical worldview uh, that can take the political issues in hand, as well as the legal issues, the philosophical issues, and then, of course, the theological issues, and weave those together, uh, I think it's essential uh, for having these kinds of discussions, because otherwise they're just truncated and incomplete. And, uh, you know, hopefully um, that's the direction we can head. But it's, uh, as you said, if they were simple problems, we'd have already solved them. So they're complicated. Mm. We have to work on them. Okay, so I'm throwing this out there. I know we only have a minute, and this is a conversation that's going to take more than a minute, but I'm going to I'm gonna sew it in here so that we can return to it. Uh, okay. I'm I'm just observing I'll use the term civil war because I heard it yesterday in relationship to what's going on on the Democratic side of the aisle. It's certainly going on on the Republican side of the aisle as well. I mean, there are it's just really obvious there's so much breadth 
in right. each party now that they are not rightly described as parties. Um, and so in the traditional sense. And so um, is it possible that the two party system becomes a four party system or a six party system? And if so, can I make one up? Because I have an idea. It is possible. It really is. We'd have to rethink the way that we do uh, legislative elections. But I think that it's very possible. And I think, honestly, we're at the point where for the health of our country, we probably need different political alternatives and a slightly different model. Because, as you said, those parties are having a hard time representing big chunks of people. And then on top of that, getting things done in the legislative process itself. And so Congress is a little broken right now. And I think that's partly because our parties aren't functioning well. All right. So I'm te- I'm teeing up an idea for the Reformation Party. I'll send you some notes. Got it. Got it. Count me <laughs> up. Count me in. I know. I think you would come to a Reformation Party. All right. That's Dr. Mark Caleb Smith. Uh, prayers for you and your students in D.C. as, uh, as you study together and um, celebrate this great nation and its Christian uh, founders and the foundations of it, uh, the ideas upon all of which this is constructed. So thanks so much. It was a really good big idea, and it continues to persist as a good big idea today. Absolutely. Thank you. Thanks to all your listeners. Take care. Absolutely. We've got to take a break, and then we'll be right back. All right, boys. Boys and college. What is going on with men in America? Have we experienced the death of the gentleman? What does it mean for uh, a man to be a man today? Are there still ladies and gentlemen? What did that mean when it meant something? Yep, this is a conversation I'm going to have with the president of the University of Northwestern St. Paul. His name's Dr. Alan Curitan. He and I have been thinking about this, and we thought we're just going to talk about it in front of you. That's up next here on Mornings with Carmen. No matter what you're going through, God can bring beauty from ashes. Hi, I'm Mark Gregston with Parenting Today's Teens. The Old Testament prophet Isaiah first used those words, beauty from ashes. Perhaps that's exactly what you need to hear right now in your personal journey. One of the darkest seasons as a couple came as we worked through the abuse my wife suffered as a child. Counseling, God's grace, and a commitment to work through the tragedy has moved Jan to a life surrounded by restored relationships. What I love more than anything else is the beautiful character that emerged from the ashes of abuse. Remember Romans 8:28 that God works all things together for good. God can take any situation and bring beauty from ashes. Want to hear Mark in person? For a list of upcoming events, go to parentingtodaysteens.org. Joining me now, the president of the University of Northwestern St. Paul, Dr. Alan Curitan. Welcome, sir. Good morning, Carmen. Good to hear your voice again. Oh, it's good to hear you, too. It's good yeah. to hear you, too. All right. Good to be so, in the studio, too, right? It's yes. good. Yes. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. So um, you have been at this higher ed thing uh, for a number of years. So I want to visit with you about not just headlines that you and I are both reading, but 
uh, realities that you and I are both experiencing in relationship to men and women and higher education. And so maybe just frame it for us this way. How long have you been engaged in higher ed and what have you seen? What's your experience been over time in terms of um, the ratio of men to women seeking uh, college and university degrees? Well, I'm, I'm in my 42nd year working in higher education, both at uh, Christian colleges and then I had a short uh, time at Iowa State University in Ames, Iowa. But uh, what I've seen just in my professional career is a tremendous shift from encouraging women to stay at home and encouraging men to go to college to where it is now almost diametrically in opposite directions. So over time, especially during my 40 years, we've seen the percentage of men, which was usually about 60 to 70 percent going to college. When you when you look at your uh, student population of any institution, so it'd be like a 60, 40, 70, 30 split to now where it's just 35 percent men, 65 percent women, if not increasing. And, And it's been an interesting phenomenon. But if you look at what our culture has done uh, in in response, our culture is emphasizing a lot of opportunities for women, uh, opportunities and encouragement, words of encouragement, programs of encouragement, scholarships and things like that, and have operated on the assumption for the last 40 years that the men are okay. And as a consequence, there's been a significant shift like you're talking about. So we now are going after male students to uh, encourage them to enroll in college where the women, uh, female students are. They're, they're coming in droves. So this has been covered in, uh, in all kinds of media outlets. The Wall Street oh, yeah. Journal is, is one that you and I have both read in relationship mm-hmm. to the, the percentage of uh, or the ratio of men to women or now women to men in terms mm-hmm. of who dominates on college and university campuses, who's getting... Uh, degrees that go beyond, um, you know, a bachelor's. So who are who are then going to be the professors and the teachers, the doctors? I mean, on and on and on. The, uh, mm-hmm. And so we're not just talking about what's going on on college campuses and whether or not, you know, when your when your kids go to school, they're they're going to maybe find the person they're going to spend their life with. Um, but the society wide issues, the issues related not just to what happens on a university campus, but what happens after that and where folks end up in terms of jobs and marriage and um, and maybe the way that men and women are going to feel uh, about mm-hmm. a spouse who is more educated or um, has had more educational experiences and may be the higher wage earner and sort of the flip uh, nationwide, culture-wide, that that will be women and not men. And I just have to say, like, that's a conversation that as Christians, we have to start having in terms of the expectations of, uh, of the emerging generations. Well, well, I, I, I couldn't agree with you more. It, it, it's going to be interesting how it does play out. And, and here's the reality. Uh, you know, Georgetown University at Washington, D.C. did a workforce uh, study a couple of years ago, and uh, they, they have been adamant in their declaration of their research that we need more education at the higher education level as a country for not only our economy, but just for our socio-demographic or dynamic, I should say. And and, the, and when their rationale is, is that as our technology continues to accelerate and improve, 
we need more of an educated, if you will, uh, population. Uh, and, and so they were encouraging people to go to higher education. Now, you might say, well, that seems to be self-serving. But, but the idea is that we definitely need a more educated workforce. However, there are still the trades, right? Uh, Carmen, I mean, you still, you still need those service individuals that can help you with uh, the things of life that, I, you know, I have no idea how to plumb a house. Or I, One time I accidentally tried to repair the sink in my house and ended up, you know, breaking the copper tube and water going everywhere. And I thought, I need to stay in my lane <laughs> and mm-hmm. use the expertise of someone who knows what they're doing, even though, you know, uh, I, I think I know what I'm doing or I can read a book or watch a YouTube video. But we need uh, an educated society. And right now what's happening is that I think we as a culture, we're not letting our our young people grow up or we're we're prolonging adolescence and allowing them to be dependent upon us as parents more so than we should. And so, you know, you have that kind of, you know, uh, you juxtapose those two issues back and forth together, one that we're not allowing them to grow up uh, and, and take on work responsibilities, and you know, because they're, they're busy on their iPad or they're on, you know, or they're busy on their phone or, you know, that kind of thing, or they, or we just provide for them versus, you know, the individuals to say, you need an education. You need to pursue this. Let's, you know, let's pursue the idea of college. Let's talk about college while you're in, in grade school, while you're in junior high, plant that image and opportunity. Uh, early in their life and just say, okay, what is it you're looking for? How do we do this? And then, you know, you talk about the the ramifications of us, uh, for us as a society, when you have, when you have that situation where the, the breadwinner is now not in that traditional mode, not that, that it's bad. It's just that, okay, does the, does the other spouse then have the emotional stability and the um, self-confidence to say, this is okay. This is okay, you know, for for me to allow my part, my spouse to be the breadwinner. Am I often running here? You know, maybe I. Yeah, maybe no, I you're so good. No, you, no, I think that um, I think that the conversation about um, identity and roles and yeah. marriage yeah. and family. I mean, you know, the reality is women are still the ones who are going to have babies, mm-hmm. and so. But then mm-hmm. we have to get into the conversation like pretty mm-hmm. quickly. Because I think Christians have been resistant participants in the conversation at the national level about um, paternal leave, let alone family leave, sure. and and uh, and all kinds of conversations related to who actually stays home and right. and why and right. what. And so I think that the testimony of um, of dads who, even if it was un, uh, unplanned and unwelcome, dads who had the opportunity to stay home with their babies. Um, or their little kids mm-hmm. uh, and be the primary parent at, you know, for a for a period of time, even between jobs or those. Like, I think we need to hear those testimonies. Um, I think we need to recognize the value of the relationship between dads and their kids. Mm-hmm. Fatherlessness is a crisis in America. We recognize that. Um, so why wouldn't we be placing greater value on the role of a dad in a family um, in terms of raising up the next generation? So I think there are entry points for Christians into this conversation. Mm-hmm. Um, let's take a break. and we come back, I want to talk about higher ed and and other pressures and forces upon it. And maybe since you surfaced the conversation about um, technical 
fields. Um, we, we would traditionally use the term trades, and so I want to explore that a little bit and maybe the stigma related to that particular word. Um, but let's talk about all of the all of the opportunities that exist out there for really great work um, and and how the university model might have to be adapted in order to meet the current demands of, of young men in the culture today. Does that sound good? Sounds great. Let's do it. All right. We're going to have that conversation with Dr. Alan Curitan from the University of Northwestern St. Paul in just a moment. We'll be right back. I want to be a good man. I do like I should man. I want to be the kind of man the mirror likes to see. Talking with Dr. Alan Curitan, the president of the University of Northwestern St. Paul. You can find him at unwsp.edu. Right? Yes. I know. That's just good for me to write it down and spit it out accurately. <clears throat> All right. So, Dr. Curitan, um, let's talk about the way hired ed has changed and needs to continue to uh, adapt to the realities of a changing um, work environment and the needs of employers across the country. Because I think that part of the challenge is, like, guys don't want to go to college and get a useless degree. Spend four years sit four more years sitting in a classroom that is really designed for girls and um, a learning environment that's really designed for girls to produce a degree that gets them no job. Like nobody wants that. Well, right. Okay. Now let's, let me, let me back up a little bit. I think that's where the perception of the general public is of higher education. So is it a career preparation path or is higher education about preparing you for a lifetime, a lifetime of values and morals and philosophy of how I'm going to approach life? Because here's the reality. There are jobs that these graduates of this class, this generation, that are going to be doing that haven't even been created yet. So what we're trying to do in our students is create an ability to continue to have lifelong learning and to continue to think critically and so there's the motivation there that I'm not preparing you for a career in 2024 or 2023. I'm preparing you for a lifetime that you might have two or three different types of jobs or at, at adaptations of your job. So, in other words, what that career is. And, and the important thing, Carmen, that we talked about at Northwestern is the calling, the vocation. You know, vocation is Latin for calling. You know, what is the call that God has placed on your life and how are you going to pursue that? So we have a number of students that major, let's say they major in secondary education to prepare to teach in high school, but they ended up finding out that the marketplace draws them. And so they leave education and they enter the workforce in in various businesses or vice versa. Like my daughter majored in youth ministries, but then decided that she wanted to be in the public school, went back and got her degree in education so she could teach and coach at the junior high level. Now, bless anybody that wants to work at the <laughs> junior high level, right? I mean, you have to have a special set of skills. But what, what college is about is not necessarily career preparation. It's all about preparing a student for that call and that, that place that God wants to put in the sweet spot of their life. 
And, and there's nothing better than when you're in the sweet spot that God's called you. So, but let's go back to the idea, because a lot of parents say, well, I want my child to get a, you know, a job when they get out of, uh, out of college, which is fair. But what we say to them is that your son or daughter will have an education that's grounded them in a biblical worldview, that's grounded them in the understanding, okay, how do I adapt? How do I adjust? And how, how do I engage with life after I leave school? Now, let me tell you, we prepare our students exceedingly well. Like, you know, all of our accounting majors usually have a job with some type of accounting firm months before, you know, a couple months before. Even our nursing students have all said to me that most of them are getting jobs right now two or three months before their final ceremony uh, when we when we graduate. So, you know, that's not unusual. Or to see our kids go on, our, our kids, to see our students go on to graduate school and things like that. So... Uh, but one of the things we're wrestling with to answer your question is what is the role then of the university as our society, as we evolve? And I'm, I'm a, we're looking now at Northwestern. We're looking at the idea of coming up with a one or a two-year degree program in some of the areas that are now emerging within our marketplace, i.e. Bitcoin or, uh, if you will, drone technology or, or if you will, uh, what with the electric car evolution that's coming. That is coming. So, you know, we don't necessarily need a mechanic for the combustible engine, but what about those technicians that have to work within an electric car and understand mm-hmm. how that system works within an electric car, especially with the batteries and things like that. So, we're, you know, we're looking at all those options right now, not necessarily plumbing and welding and, and uh, body work, you know, that type of stuff, uh, auto body work. Uh, but we're looking at those technologies that are emerging that are so unique and different right now, like this whole blockchain uh, uh, world that's being developed. And so we're going to look at that, take a hard look at that and say, what one-year or two-year programs could we create that would attract students who are interested in that type of career path but don't want the traditional or the four-year experience of a university? Yeah, because I got to tell you, there's headlines I don't even understand, and I am. This is my job, but when I hear that Ecuador is uh, is using the thermal energy from a volcano to mine Bitcoin, because mining Bitcoin takes so much energy, and I say to myself, Bitcoin's not even a thing, so there's no there there. What are they even talking about? And what you're saying is, they're there is thinking that needs to be done and students who not only need to be prepared for those kinds of jobs mm-hmm. that I don't even understand what they're talking about, mm-hmm. but people who are prepared to do so, who have had an opportunity to be on a campus where their whole life is cultivated alongside what they need to know to get a job. Yeah. And so there's a more comprehensive experience happening in the forming of a person uh, that you're talking about, as opposed to um, higher ed being uh, a certifier um, of a particular skill set that enables a person to do a job. Um, and I think that's really helpful. I think that inviting people to think through what is your philosophy mm-hmm. of education? Mm-hmm. What is your philosophy of higher education? Mm-hmm. You know, why do you think students should uh, go and get uh, an education beyond the one that they got while they were living at your house, because that's also part of this. Um, right. You know, you learn a lot by moving out of your house and 
and living with like there's a lot of learning that goes on about yourself and others and the world that we live in and resilience and um, that that happens just because you're not living at home with your parents anymore. And that's a part of this as well in terms of, you know, a real appeal for residential uh, higher ed. Oh, exactly. Exactly. Now, here here's the struggle, though. Here's the struggle right now in our society. Uh, a lot of parents are having a hard time letting go. And so what happens is their child goes to the university and they still remain involved in their lives in the sense of, you know, what's happening? Are you going to class? That type of thing. And so, you know, we have some parents calling their student to wake them up to get them to class. You know, and and so you kind of say, no, wait a minute. There's a maturation process here that they've got to succeed and they've got to fail on their own. But the parents, you know, are so, so concerned about and And, you know, I understand what they're they're concerned about that. But sometimes... You you got to let your child fail so that they learn. Mm-hmm. There's there is growth in adversity. There you know there's growth in failure. But right now we're doing everything we can to make sure that our child never never fails. I'll give you a simple example. When I was growing up, you could go to a, a playground set, and any playground set there was no safety net. There was no soft cushion. There was no sand dust under the, you know, under the uh, uh, the bars that you crawled across. Now you go to a playground set. It is so safe that there's no way because we don't want students to get hurt. And, and I understand you don't want students to get hurt. But at the same time, what we've done is that, you know, I learned from my broken wrist. I learned, you know, what where the risks are. I learned that if oh, if I do that, there's a consequence and there's, you know, there's a cause and effect when I when I do that. But but then again, I understand why we want to make things safe. But we've grown, we've developed a whole generation of young people that have not experienced that that type of situation. And so, off we go, on, you know, on another a tangent for Al Kiernan, but what my, my passion is that we need to let these students grow and mature during these critical years of when they're 18 to 24 so that they learn, like you were just saying, socially, they learn emotionally, they learn, they learn intellectually, they learn, you know, as a community. And how do we work as a community together? You know, how are you going to solve that problem? I'm not going to jump in and solve it for me, but what are you going to do about it? That's what I would say to my son or my daughter. What are you? I understand the issue. I understand the problem you're having with your professor, but what are you going to do about it? I'm not going to call your professor. I'm not going to wake you up in the morning. What are you going to do? Are you going to buy an alarm? Are you going to set two or three alarms? What are you going to do about it? So anyway. I love that. Yeah. I love <laughs> that. Okay. Do you have a podcast yet? Not yet. Okay, could it be called On a Tangent with Alan Curitan? <laughs> yes, it could. Yes, because it could. then sorry. you could talk about, no, because then you could talk about all of it and any of it, and it would be so great. There you go. Thank you. All great. right. Oh, I got to wrap it up. Hey, thank you so much. Thank you, thank you, thank you. That's Dr. Alan Curitan. Yes, uh, Zimri and Chad texting in. I will get you hooked up with the vision at UNWSP um, for, for this project. Yes, people are texting in. They love it. All right. We got to leave it right there. We got another hour of Mornings with Carmen up next. Thanks for listening to this podcast of Mornings with Carmen LeBurge from Faith Radio. If you haven't, you can subscribe to automatically receive the podcast through iTunes or the Google Play Music app. That way you never miss an episode. It's also available anytime at MyFaithRadio.com.